Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you bring your faith into public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Joining you from the, the home studio while we still quarantine for COVID-19 and try to keep everyone safe and healthy. And we're hoping and praying that all of you are safe and healthy and having a blessed day. You can catch the Bridge Builder program right here each week on your favorite Catholic radio station. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast or find us on your favorite podcast apps such as SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Remember that you or your organization can sponsor the Bridge Builder program. It's a great way to let people know that your business or organization supports providing great Catholic programming. Send us an email at show at mncatholic.org. Again, show at mncatholic.org for opportunities for sponsorships. Each week on the Bridge Builder, we try to bring you great interviews on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in public life. In today's episode, we continue our Catholics at the Capitol segment, and we're talking to Santo Cruz, who is Vice President of Government and Community Relations and Associate General Counsel at CentraCare Health. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about making end-of-life health care decisions. And stick around for our bricklayer segment, where we have an opportunity for students and whether you're a parent, grandparent, student, or teacher, you'll find this opportunity valuable. It's an upcoming webinar called Lessons in Advocacy. We're pleased to welcome the bridge builder, Santo Cruz, who as a Catholic and a specialist in government relations, brings his faith into the public arena. Not only is he Vice President of Government and Community Relations and Associate General Counsel at Centra Care Health, he also teaches at the University of St. Thomas School of Law. Santo has held positions at the Capitol as Deputy Commissioner for Human Services at the Minnesota Department of Human Services and has also worked at the State Department of Agriculture and the Department of Commerce, and he's also been a prosecutor for Hennepin County. Santo Cruz, welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Thank you so much. I appreciate uh, you having me on the show today. It's good to be with you. Tell us about how you came to focus your professional work on government relations and advocacy. You know, Jason, that's a great question because it's one of those things that a lot of folks ask me, how did you end up becoming a lobbyist? The, the honest answer is, is that uh, much like so many things, uh, things make a lot more sense in the rearview mirror in hindsight than they do uh, trying to uh, kind of make the decisions going forward. So the honest answer is it wasn't a constructed um, career path. Uh, everything was based upon kind of the experiences I had, the expertise I was, I was gaining throughout my public service. And so each situation kind of led seamlessly into the next. And so uh, government relations was kind of an extension of, it, it was Centric Care, it, it covers my home geography. And so I'm from Western Stearns County. I grew up on a dairy farm, uh, one of nine kids. And I will tell you that uh, being able to use my government experience, my law degree and my, um, my, my lobbying uh, work on behalf of my home area of the state has been kind of a full circle uh, blessing, but something that um, obviously I think there, there, there is a plan to these things, and it certainly fits within God's plan, even if I didn't know it up front. 
Yeah, sometimes in our professional lives and our vocational lives, we're building the plane as we fly it, right? And then uh, we end up at a destination that's so that true. we never, never quite expected. So I know that's certainly the case for me as well. In a nutshell, Santa, what do you think are the hallmarks of uh, effective government relations and working with legislators? What are you know the three basic keys to success uh, that you share with people? I really try to focus on uh, the, you know, as I've, as I've talked to you in other, uh, other venues, really the, the people, the process, and the policy. And first is people, because government is just a, a group of people that all have different responsibilities, different sets of interests, uh, different duties. And it's so important to make sure that you're, you're encountering the, the human person first, uh, respecting them. And I would say in particular for the, for the lobbyists, Avoiding leverage where it is convenient, um, because that is something that I think is a, is, is a perennial temptation uh, at the Capitol uh, to make our human relationships about leverage. So people process. There's so much process. Government is not an easy thing to figure out in terms of government programs, uh, how bills pass, how rules and regulations work. So you really have to be a student of the process. And, and understand it so that you can maximize your ability to advocate uh, for your positions or for your client. And then policy, you you got you to gotta have something that works for people. Uh, and, and by policy, I mean you have to be able to make sure that it's not just something that you want uh, for yourself or your own business. It's something you want for the good uh, of Minnesotans or the public at large or a subset that's going to affect more than just your immediate interests. So those three kind of key pillars of people, uh, policy and process are the things I try to focus on with people, and that's really what I do every every time I go to the Capitol the best I can. That is an excellent description of uh, advocacy, and I've confessed to having stolen that wonderful alliteration multiple times and used it, and I've even added my own, poised, principled, and passionate. So I'm, I'm grateful yeah, for your right. three Ps. <laughs> To which I've added my own three Ps. So uh, that's excellent, Santo. Let's let's uh, turn a little bit to healthcare and and the work that you're in now. And people know generally that the business of healthcare is difficult and faces enormous pressures. Uh, but some of those are due to emerging demographic challenges. Say a little bit more about that. I think you explain this for people very well who aren't as necessarily familiar with the ongoing pressures and emerging pressures that healthcare faces. Thanks. Yeah, I think one of the areas that healthcare has become a, an area of, of public life and public policy, that there's an expectation uh, for, for the average citizen that you, not only that you have a position on it, but that you have a strong position on it. And in that challenge, it's important to understand there are certain aspects of uh, what we see in healthcare that even healthcare doesn't like, but, but it's but it's a, it's a feature of drivers that are, to an extent, out of our control. For, for example, you know, uh, roughly a little under half of Minnesota's children are on a public program called Medicaid. In Minnesota, we call it medical assistance, but it's a, it's a federal Medicaid program. Um, additionally, we have the largest uh, you know, uh, group of folks entering into the Medicare uh, public program those are people 65 and older, and that's, that's a public program designed to, to be aged into. And uh, one of the challenges with the, with the baby boomer generation, um, we're calling it the age wave, or the state calls it the age wave, is that, um, and, and you'll have to check my numbers on this, but in, in, in roughly about 600,000 
uh, new Medicare uh, Minnesotans in terms of aging into the program will be created from 2020 to 2000, I'm sorry, 2010 to 2030. So we're right in the middle of that age wave uh, right now. When you add those two groups of people together, uh, that is a segment of the population that, that gets served in healthcare a great deal that does not directly cover the cost of its care. And that's not to say that's a good thing or a bad thing. That's the reality of those reimbursement models for those government programs. And so what we see is a shrinking part of the pie that actually cross-subsidizes those populations. So as we get into this conversation about how we pay for health care, which is you know, debated hotly on both sides of the aisle, one of the driving factors of this is that with this age wave and with the structural uh, deficiency in the way that we reimburse it for these two groups of, uh, of folks, we're running out of folks to cross-subsidize the services that are needed. Absolutely, we want everyone to get health care coverage and to receive the health care that they need. And we want that for ourselves. We want that for the poor, the sick, the vulnerable. Uh, absolutely. Uh, how we achieve that through public discourse, uh, through policy debate, and through really hard-fought uh, legislation is, is the work that you know, I'm engaged on a regular basis. And it is incremental work. There is not a silver bullet to some of these issues, in particular the ones that stem from drivers like demographics. Yeah, in the United States, everyone wants simple yes or no or right-left answers. There's always a binary choice, right? But healthcare is uh, not one of those places where there's often a simple binary choice. And uh, that's perhaps why we have a lot of trouble with the issue in the United States here. That's so true. It's so true. We're speaking with Santo Cruz. He is one of the Catholics at the Capitol and a specialist in government relations for Centricare Health. He also teaches at the University of St. Thomas School of Law and is speaking with us about advocacy and what's going on in health care policy. Santo, one significant health care statistic I've come across is that 90% of the health care costs that we incur, incur over our lives are incurred in the last six months. How do we protect the dignity of human life uh, while navigating the reality that technology and science allow us to live longer than ever before, that's expensive. And at the end of the day, death is, is okay. It's, it's okay to die. Say, say a little bit more about that. I know that's a tough question. Yeah, okay or not, it's, it's certainly going to happen for all of us. That's know, right. In terms of, you know, uh, and so uh, time has an unbeaten record when it comes to, to human life. And so when, when we get into those conversations, you're, you're so right that they are very delicate conversations. And yes, uh, I don't know the specific uh, percentages, but absolutely the vast, vast, vast majority of your health care costs will, will occur uh, usually in the last six months uh, to year of your, of your life. And obviously that is not uh, the care that is going to be extending your life uh, or, or adding a lot of uh, quality to it. Now, we always want to be respectful of the dignity of the human person and make sure that we're honoring their choices. Uh, but quite honestly, what we see in healthcare is not so much uh, an inability to honor the choices. What we see is a lack of choices or directives being made, even within the Catholic context, of which I think is a lot broader than, than maybe most Catholics would realize. And so there is this push uh, and this desire from your healthcare systems and, and providers to say, we want to honor your choices, but we want you to have to clearly communicate that to us. Because the default is we will do everything we can. 
And of course, when we do everything we can, uh, that can get very expensive very quickly. Um, when families, uh, particularly children uh, of elderly adults, uh, are in conflict and, and don't know what it is that they want to do at the end of life, whether or not they want to withdraw extraordinary means from someone's care, then again, where there is that lack of clarity, uh, your healthcare provider is going to do everything they can. That creates a cost to the system um, that we all end up paying for in some way, shape, or form. We really like to ignore that fact that it is uh, that it is not a singular event that doesn't affect other people, but it really does. And so, for those folks uh, who are willing to have that conversation, we engage into into it in real time uh, when folks are getting to the end of their life. But we much much prefer, and it's much much better to have the time to have that conversation to go through that process long before uh, the end of life decisions have to be made so that your wishes can be clear uh, for your loved ones so that um, the documents can be executed and folks can do what you truly want to do again instead of just doing everything that's possible at the end of at the end of life Santo, your comments allow me to put in a plug for the Minnesota Catholic Healthcare Directive that we have designed and make available for free at mncatholic.org. Again, mncatholic.org, people can find the Minnesota Catholic Healthcare Directive and uh, the Guide to End-of-Life Decision-Making so they can have those conversations about end-of-life issues and then provide clarity, as you're suggesting, Santo, about end-of-life issues and decision-making and those choices. So thanks for bringing that issue to our attention and making that clear. CentraCare manages St. Cloud Hospital. It's a Catholic hospital in St. Cloud. What, what difference do you think that Catholic health care makes as opposed to uh, simply a secular or other faith-based uh, health care system? What's the, what's the Catholic difference in health care? Well, what I would say is uh, for someone who walks into a hospital, obviously, not as much right now. We're doing as much distance work as everybody else can during the, the pandemic. But uh, I still go into the hospital fair amount, and that's where my, where my office is, uh, right next to the chapel. And as you walk in on the first floor, I think one of the things that strikes me every single day is that I walk past uh, over a dozen photographs of the past presidents of the St. Cloud Hospital. And up until the last three, uh, they are all Benedictine nuns wearing a habit. And I, I can tell you that right off the bat, you say this is a very special place um, that honors its history and its commitment to the, the Benedictine sisters who, who really built the hospital for the community, who see it as a public trust between the community and their service. And of course, uh, that means it, it definitely means that we, we honor all faiths and we, we serve all faiths. But what it, what it adds also is a different lens through which we view uh, those who are sick and those who are in need, that they're also participating in the sufferings of Christ, uh, that we ourselves are the hands of Christ uh, as we serve these individuals. And it is that added component that I think brings some of the love back into healthcare that I think folks um, are, are, are hungry for and, and, and are yearning for, uh, quite honestly. I recently was told, um, I, I can't remember uh, the, the folks' uh, name at the moment, but I was at a conference and, and, and the individual was, uh, was talking about uh, what is healthcare, and uh, and he was a secular individual and he said we're in the love business. Uh, it's applied love in terms of being able to care for someone else, and I think that really gets it right. Even the even the secular medicine, you know, when you're being taken care of, if you feel that you're being uh, loved at the same time that your problem is being solved, or 
uh, or at least worked on and treated. And so it is not something that's exclusive to Catholic healthcare, but I think it's something that Catholic healthcare has built into its model, not as an add-on, but as an integral foundation. Your, your comments make me think of the, the Ken Burns documentary on the Mayo Clinic and the way in which the Franciscan sinners, sisters, Franciscan sinners, <laughs> the Franciscan sinners were so important to building that great institution. And even though it's not a Catholic institution, their spirit and their, uh, their vision and their love still permeates uh, the Mayo Clinic. But we do want to preserve Catholic health care, and it's facing a lot of challenges uh, precisely because the religious orders, uh, like you mentioned, the Benedictines, who were the original founders or sponsors, they're either uh, uh, they don't have the numbers anymore to maintain the institutions, or they're creating different uh, institutional alignments or getting merged in the systems. How do we still preserve Catholic health care in the midst of all this health care consolidation and the decline of some of these religious orders that built these great institutions? That's a great question because so much about how we confront disruption, and currently it was, you know, obviously the pandemic and so many other things, uh, ask this question of how do we preserve something that we know has some, some real intrinsic and significant value? And the answer is always it has to significantly adapt and change in order to preserve that which it's trying to protect. So uh, you're absolutely right. Just as the demographics are a big driver uh, in, the, in our earlier conversation, they are here too in terms of uh, vocation, age, resources, alignment, everything that you listed is spot on. And so in order to do that at the St. Cloud Hospital, we have uh, a Catholic board uh, that involves the sisters, uh, the local bishop, um, the local uh, Catholic ethicist and, and, and others and community members to really guide our identity as a Catholic institution while we carry out the, you know, the, the mission of healthcare um, from both a business, clinical, uh, you know, our CEO is a wonderful man who, who talks about um, healthcare is both high-tech and high-touch, and that you have to have both. And with regard to the high-tech management of healthcare, there's so much going on that you have to manage in terms of technology uh, and adaptation that that part can really feel like it wears their space to continue to maintain um, mission and identity, you name it. And then one of the ways that we integrate that is to put in uh, some, some, some oversight, some, some, uh, some governance for our Catholic identity to ensure that we're continuing to live out the mission of the sisters while we you know, own and manage and run the hospital. Santo, again, that analogy of uh, flying the plane while building it probably applies to what's going on in healthcare during this pandemic. But you know, a lot of the elective uh, uh, services that are provided are those are on pause right now, and healthcare organizations are facing cutbacks, uh, challenges. What are we learning generally during this pandemic? What are the lessons that you think that we're taking away that healthcare industry is taking away thus far from all these challenges? Uh, certainly, we're learning that, uh, and I think this, we, we've known it in healthcare, but I think it's become kind of an, uh, we've pulled the curtain back, that the way that Centric Care and, and virtually every other health system in the state is able to offer mental health services, primary care, all of the things that people think of when they think of, this is what it means to have a full-service healthcare system in my neck of the woods, is actually being cross-subsidized by other services like elective procedures. And I, and I want to make sure that folks understand that elective procedures 
uh, we're not talking about cosmetic things. We're talking about very serious procedures, knee replacements, or in some cases, uh, removals of, 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 of foreign bodies and, 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 and tumors and the like. So I don't want people to hear elective procedures and think that these are uh, low-value procedures. Uh, they basically have been determined that they're not of imminent risk of this person um, dying for not having it, like a heart attack or a brain aneurysm or the like. So that decision gets made on the clinical side. But what we're learning in this, in this pandemic, to your, to your question, is um, when you turn off the valve of that, which is more reim- has a better reimbursement model, both from the public uh, programs and from commercial payers, because that's the way we've decided to construct our healthcare reimbursement system, um, and you rely upon cross-subsidization, uh, when you turn that off, a lot of other things start to feel the effects very, very quickly. And so uh, I think we're certainly learning that. Uh, backing up maybe just a little bit further in terms of lessons, one of the things that I've been heartened by and, and hopeful is that we're also learning uh, the real dignity of the frontline health worker, including all the janitorial services, that they really are part of your healthcare team. They really are on the front lines. And certainly I think we're learning that lesson outside of the hospital walls as well, from truck drivers to uh, what would typically be referred to as blue collar work. And as someone who you know, grew up on a dairy farm and has certainly done a, a certain share of, uh, of blue collar work, it's edifying to hear uh, the respect and the dignity that those jobs absolutely deserve. But may have, we may have all forgotten over time as we've taken things for granted in our modern conveniences. Absolutely. That's uh, important to remember those people right on the front lines and the important services they do. Santo, this has been a great conversation. We are very blessed to have you on the phone. Uh, Santo Cruz is one of the great young public policy professionals in and around the Capitol and a great Catholic leader as well. Santo Cruz, thanks very much for joining us on the Bridge Builder Day, and God bless your work with Centricare. Thank you so much. God bless to you and your listeners. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Back to the Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending to our producer, Kit Cross. Kit, what is in the mailbag for today? Yeah, so because of the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot more people are giving thought to their own health care decisions and asking questions about how to ensure that their care, especially at the end of life, is in line with church teaching. You touched on it a little bit there with Santo, but it's really not a small topic. Maybe you could expound a little bit on some of the tools that are available to our listeners through the Minnesota Catholic Conference that can help them make those decisions at the end of life. Thanks, Kit. And, and no one really wants to jump into the question of death, and it's an un, often uncomfortable topic. But uh, times like these during this pandemic uh, help us uh, or remind us, I should say, of our mortality and the difficult situations that could arise when we're being cared for in a healthcare context. Who speaks for me when I can't speak for myself? How do I make good decisions about end-of-life care? When uh, do, I, uh, do I have a responsibility to preserve life or help preserve the life of another? And when can I say it's okay to die? And so to help fill that gap, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, we have put out Bishop-approved document called a Guide to End-of-Life Decisions. And we've also created the Minnesota Catholic Health Care Directive. 
The Guide to Life Decisions gives you an overview of the relevant principles that you need to know to have in your toolbox as you make decisions about end-of-life care. There's no guide that can cover every possible scenario, so what the guide does is try to provide the relevant principles, but then it's up to you to prudently and prayerfully apply those in a particular care context. Now, someone may have designated you their health care agent for those times when they can't speak for themselves. That's even more important for you to study the guide to end-of-life principles and understand the principles of end-of-life care so that you can make responsible and faithful decisions on behalf of those who are entrusted to you and in your care. Now, there's a lot of talk, of course, about different legal tools at the end of life. You may have heard of the living wills or advanced directives or the pulse form, and there's no substitute for having a healthcare agent. Again, rather than checking boxes or writing down directives, having someone who can make decisions in real-time settings, that's the gold standard. So we want you want someone who's well-formed to speak on your behalf. That could be a spouse or it could be a friend. Um, another family member who can make those decisions for you. It's good to do this if you don't have relatives arguing about, for example, what those principles are and how they should be applied. So select the right health care agent, and that's going to be the best thing. That's the gold standard in end-of-life care. But we also created the Minnesota Catholic Health Care Directive, which can be found, again, at our website, mncatholic.org, under the Resources tab, Catholic End-of-Life Care Decisions to help you both assign that uh, healthcare agent, but also give some directives and give them to your healthcare provider. You can fill out that form, and then that provides the relevant principles that your healthcare provider should use when caring for you as well. And so those can be put in your medical record, and those should be uh, followed in a care setting. So you can even help your agent by providing that sort of clarity. There's a form called the Pulse Form, and we strongly discourage the Pulse Form because it's a box-checking tool that uh, I think is more general and more abstract than it really needs to be. Checking boxes in, in the abstract and not in a real-time care setting could lead to a whole host of outcomes that you didn't intend. Uh, we all say we don't want to be hooked up to ventilators or this or that to happen, but what if you have a relative who is flying in to see you and a, a healthcare professional makes a decision based on your pulse form that you didn't intend. So that's why acute care settings are the places in which decisions should be made and why pulse forms are discouraged. You can find more about why the church discourages pulse, pulse forms at mncatholic.org, again, under our Catholic End of Life Care Resources tab. So the pulse, the healthcare directive, and the guide to end of life decisions are key resources at the end of life. Again, you can find those for free mncatholic.org slash healthcare directive, mncatholic.org slash healthcare directive. Great. Thanks, Jason. And before we go, we want to leave our listeners with a couple of practical ways that they can start building the bridge between faith and public life. We've got an exciting event coming up. You want to tell our listeners about that? Yes, yeah, so normally we like to do training events uh, for people to break down the barriers between them and participation at the Capitol, being an advocate. We're all called to be faithful citizens and bring our faith into the public square. So we had some great events lined up for May 6th and 7th. Of course, no one is allowed into the Capitol right now, so we had to uh, uh, switch that a little bit. But we switched to an online platform designed for students. So students are doing distance learning right now and to provide some great content and useful content for schools and families and teachers. We've created the program Lessons in Advocacy, Students Standing for Life and Dignity. It's going to be a great, engaging, live, and interactive webinar on Tuesday, May 12th from 10 to 1130. 
You can find more information about that at our website, mncatholic.org. But it's a great program. Why should students attend, or indeed anyone who's interested? Those people will learn why Catholic students' voices matter in the political process, what the Church teaches about uh, political engagement and defending life and dignity at every stage of life, how students' ideas can become laws, and how to stand up for life and dignity by effectively interacting with legislators. Again, Santo Cruz, and earlier in our show, talked about people, policy, process, and I like to say poised, principled, and passionate, so a little bit of alliteration there, but we'll dive into just those topics during this webinar. We're grateful to have Bishop Andrew Cousins from the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis to join us on Lessons in Advocacy, and there will be a live Q&A with a Minnesota legislator. Parents need to register their students, so go to mncatholic.org, click on the window pane, or go to mncatholic.org slash lessons in advocacy for further details and to get registered. Students are passionate, they're idealistic, they innately understand the importance of life and dignity and protecting it at every stage, and they're eager to make a difference in the world. So lessons in advocacy uh, designed for students age 12 to 18 will help them put tools in their toolbox to become effective advocates. We're hoping that teachers, schools, and others can spread the word about that. So again, go to mncatholic.org for more information. This live webinar takes place on Tuesday, May 12th from 10 to 11.30. That's all the time we have for today. Remember, you or your organization can become a sponsor of The Bridge Builder. Contact our producer, Kit Cross, via email at show at mncatholic.org. Listeners, remember you can be part of our mailbag segment. Again, send any of your questions to show at mncatholic.org and catch up on past episodes of The Bridge Builder at mncatholic.org slash podcast or on your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Atkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening. Continue to build the common good brick by brick. Stay safe, and have a blessed day. Take care.